Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Mary Morris to discuss her new book of poems, Late Self-Portraits. Thanks for tuning in. A compelling collection of poems, Late Self-Portraits, conveys an intimate description of lives through a collage of portraits and affliction. Weaving history and the sacred, both intimate and worldly, one encounters a blind Jorge Luis Borges with his mother, a glass confessional in the Notre Dame Cathedral, Frida Kahlo in Mexico, ghosts, a neurosurgeon's prognosis, and Marie Laveau in New Orleans. Whether in a field with Joan of Arc, encountering the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, or having dinner with Hades. These are haunting poems of loss and unearthing, equally bold, personal, and tender. I'm joined today by the book's author, Mary Morris, who is the author of two previous books of poetry, Enter Water, Swimmer, and Dear October, which won the New Mexico Book Award. She's also the recipient of the Rita Dove Award in 2008, the Western Humanity Review's Mountain West Writers' Prize in 2019, the New Mexico Discovery Award in 2005, and the National Federation of Press Women's Communications Contest Award in 2021. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. I'm really excited to talk about your book, and I wonder if we could start that discussion with a little bit of a reflection on the title. I will have to admit, when I first picked up the volume, I thought, late self-portraits, is this going to be a sort of collection of autobiographical poems, kind of attempt to render the self, you know, in poetry? And what I think readers will discover there very quickly is that this is actually something a lot different than that. It's a different way of looking at the self, a different way of looking at others. And a lot of what it is, is looking at artists and scientists and historical figures as they look at themselves. Could you say a little bit about producing this collection of self-portraits and how the title relates to the work of the volume? Sure. Yeah, Late Self-Portraits came from a poem in the book called Rembrandt Late Self-Portraits. So Rembrandt did these amazing self-portraits. And when he was older, he painted just everything, you know, the broken blood vessels. And I was so moved by that portrait and, and all of his portraits. I I thought, well, this could be a series. And I had been writing some ekphrastic poems actually for a, a long time, for a number of years. But I wanted to weave in portraits of other people and uh, other artists and my own person. Um, so there's, it weaves in uh, a lot of affliction and uh, healing in people, art, religion, history. And aging. Would you mind reading Rembrandt Late Self-Portrait to sort of give the readers a sense of what the feeling of the collection is, having been born from that idea? Certainly. This was Rembrandt Late Self-Portrait. First, I actually must tell you that cadmium, bone black, and lead white are pigments that the artist used. Rembrandt Late Self-Portrait. Crimson with broken blood vessels, he forfeits the mirror, eating pears with a glass of thyme, listens to snow fall behind memory, while cadmium corpuscle, bone black shadow, 
and lead white glisten of a drooling lip tell us how to draw death close, paint ravens in. Thank you for that. I, it's such a fascinating sort of blend of like thinking about making art as a painter and what that process is like. You mentioned the word ekphrasis, you know, writing ekphrastic poems. Could you say a little bit about how you interpret that concept and whether these are ekphrastic poems? Certainly. I've visited a lot of, I've traveled a lot around the world and I always visit museums and ruins and, you know, all architecture and all the things you like to see when you go out from where you usually live. And I didn't really know the term ekphrastic, and I started writing just from inspiration. And so I think it's, it's either about an artist or draws from the actual work itself. And uh, it's just inspiration to me. And that happens to be one of my subjects. I have poems on musicians and, you know, all kinds of artistic endeavors. There's some poems in here on uh, on writers like Borges, to me, that's considered a, an ekphrastic. When you're traveling or when you're encountering artworks, do you think of them in terms of the writing that you're doing, or do they prompt you to do writing in some direction or another? Like, what would you say is your relationship, you know, between your writing process and your experience of other artworks? Well, for instance, Rembrandt, late self-portraits, that came from I had seen Rembrandt's late self-portraits and his earlier portraits. But when I was in Amsterdam at his house on the square, I became incredibly inspired by it and kept thinking about his portraits. And that's kind of where that came from. How about some of the other artists? I know there's a poem in the book about encountering Basquiat works. Can you tell me about that experience? Yes. Um, just before the pandemic, I was in New York visiting uh, friends and family. And uh, at the Guggenheim, there was a special exhibit of Basquiat. And if you've been to the Guggenheim, it's a spiral, large white building spiral, and you, there's no steps and you go up and there's galleries on the sides. And then at the top was Basquiat's work, a retrospective. And it was so mind-blowing. And when I came out there were these guys, these kids, and I was trying to figure out how to get how to get back and take the bus. And anyway, they had painted uh, reproductions of Basquiat's work on the backs of their jackets. And so it just really inspired me. And could I read that poem? Yeah, let's do. Okay. To Basquiat at the Guggenheim. The ascending spiral will lead us. To you, a crown, head in heaven, no stairs in the building or obstruction in your vision. Angels dressed in turmeric tulle, cobalt, cadmium, bold as this planet. This gleaming white building with you at its apex, symbol, righteousness, like the young men who replicate your paintings on the backs of their jackets, who guide me home to my sister in Brooklyn. You know, one of the things that I really love about the, this poem and many of the others in the book is that there's this sort of 
sense of movement, you know, that that we're encountering alongside the speaker in the poem, these paintings and the people who are, you know, in this case, peripheral to the paintings. And one thing that I that I'm interested in thinking about or that I'm, you know, we're thinking about this question of ekphrasis, we're thinking about your experience, you know, encountering these artworks and moving through the space of them and seeing them and stuff. I was talking early on about the idea that late self-portraits, it had me expecting a kind of autobiographical endeavor or a sense to sort of, you know, a kind of ekphrasis of the self describing, you know, one's own image, you know, in poetry. I wonder about encountering these artists and their style when you start to write poems, thinking about Basquiat's paintings and the sort of intensity of them and the collage element of them. They have such a very distinct style. Did you find yourself trying to lend the poems to that style or trying to draw from those styles in the poems about the various artists and writers that you're thinking about in the volume? I think concerning the Basquiat at the Guggenheim, I think that's a long, thin poem and uh, kind of like you know, you're climbing up, you're these, this long spiral. I'm thinking of the Guggenheim. I think when I wrote this poem, I wanted it to be very vertical. But it's more kind of mimetic or kind of representation of your experience at the Guggenheim as opposed to the kind of attempt to reproduce something of Basquiat's style in the poem. Right. How can you reproduce Basquiat? Well, on, a, on the back of a jacket, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, he's such an original, just, just, he was such an incredible person who died way too young and so incredibly prolific. And just the energy in his, in his work is so stimulating. Yeah, this is sort of reminding me of other characters in the book that there's a lot of inspiring young persons kind of in the book. There's poems about girls who are accused of witchcraft in Salem in the 17th century, um, and Joan of Arc, who is a sort of famously powerful young person. I wonder if you could say something more about that, or or if did you feel a, a kind of theme in the characters that you decided to work with um, for these poems? Well, in those poems, they come from a history, a personal history of epilepsy. And uh, I began finding other women who also had had this affliction in history and other people who not, are not in the book, like Dante, who was also epileptic. And so that was a big inspiration for a number of these portraits. So there's Joan of Arc, there's Harriet Tubman, and then there's my own, a series of loss there. Would you be willing to say a little more about that experience of epilepsy? I'd be maybe particularly to think about like, how does that affect questions of memory or questions of language? Like, I'm one of the things that really strikes me about the poems to do with epilepsy in the book is that they're searching in a way or that they have a sort of, they're sort of haunted by epilepsy, or it has a kind of haunted quality. Do you have thoughts about how that affliction has affected your writing practice? Well, I think it, it has affected it quite a bit, and I don't have it anymore. I have the last seizure about four years ago. So I wrote a number of these poems when it was active, and it is sort of a disembodiment. Um, and in fact, I think we discussed earlier, Kurt, that some of those poems, I started writing them without 
any punctuation and a lot of space between. And those were really representative of disembodiment, of uh, leaving the body and strangeness, confusion, but then coming back together. What is that like to come back together to some previous state? Is it something that is difficult to capture in language? It is because I personally had a lot of signs, uh, warning signs before they would happen. Sound in the ear, the hearing, the vision. So there were a lot of a feeling and pretty terrifying, but some warnings. And coming out of that was very strange. Where, ha- where did I go? Where have I been? And uh, there's a very strange feeling. And, and I identified with a lot of these women uh, who, who also had it. And then, you know, the, there's history in here too with Salem, with the witches. A lot of those girls had seizures or were accused of epilepsy. So yeah, there's a ghost, ghost-like feeling for sure. Well, here's a poem. I, it kind of tells about it. It's called Epileptic. Within the body, a ghost. Ground unfastened, contradicted space. Is if falling from a horse in constant defeat. Day to dark, motion slowed. Nightmare stoked with trees on fire. Scent of ember, spark, and brain shimmer. Morning body of all night snow. The world dusted white. The floor hard, cold. Such a powerful depiction of a moment and the aftermath. And one of the things that I think is really resonant there with the other poems in the book is that sort of I mean, we're sort of dancing around and we're looking for ways, I think of, I'm looking for ways of understanding it, the, the sort of intensity of sense experience at a kind of remove or as part of like a process of embodiment where one might at any moment lose, you know, access to that body. I feel like there's a lot of that sort of feeling in the writing about illness in the book too, where you're, where you're thinking about, about cancer or you're thinking about, you know, treatments for illness that has has a similar kind of sensual intensity and floats on this sort of spiritual isn't the right word, but this kind of ghostly place where where consciousness is always kind of potentially drifting or severed from whatever the object of concern is. Yeah, it's like an unearthly. Yeah. It's interesting too that it's related to painting and artwork so frequently in the book that there's both bodily experience and the experience of artworks and that so many of the artists that you deal with, you know, whether it's Rembrandt, where you're emphasizing the kind of materials that make the paint, is there, is there a material component to your writing practice? What, what do you mean by material component? Well, like, do you know much about like um, late William Burroughs and the cut up method where he was doing a lot of like gathering together newspapers and flyers and sort of making collages and making making stories and poems maybe out of language collected and repurposed from other sources? Is your process in anything like that? Or do you like how do you go about writing a poem like this? 
You know, I think I just dive right in. I just write it. And then I set it aside and I read, you know, constantly re, redoing, uh, redoing stuff, taking words out and trying working on it. But I love that idea about William Burroughs and the collage, because I think when you put a book together, you're sort of doing that. I mean, some people are very strict about the subject and this has to go next to this. And, but I, I like to have it a little more organic in placement. And I, I don't really, I like to weave subjects in all my books. I tend to weave subjects together rather than making a whole lot of uh, chapters. Uh, I think there's only two chapters in this book. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Mary Morris, author of the poetry collection, Late Self-Portraits. That's interesting to think about weaving themes together. And we've already touched on, you know, sort of number of themes that run through the book, illness, epilepsy, artwork. Are those persistent interests of yours? Would we find them in earlier collections or have your themes changed over time? Well, it's interesting because all these subjects that are in this book, art, history, religion, affliction, and dying, are in all three of my books. The second book is about my mother, taking care of my mother the last years of her life. But it weaves in history and it weaves in art. And the first book has very much uh, the same subjects. So it's a long-running interest in, in artworks and illness and things. How do you see the role of writing in that set of interests? Like, well, what does the writing do for you, do you suppose, or do you hope it will do? I just get inspired by something. I, I might write a line. I, I have an idea, and I write that down, or, and I just start going from there, and I really don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, it's, it's always, always an act of discovery. We had spoken a little before we started recording uh, about your earlier writing practice where you were writing more prose poems. And as you mentioned here in this collection, things are getting sort of more free. You're, you're writing with less punctuation. There's certainly a lot of lineated poems that aren't in any way prosaic uh, in this volume. Are there other changes to your style over time or has your relationship to using language changed as you kind of take that inspiration and work it up into a poem? Well, I think as we were talking earlier, Kurt, the poems that begin with the epilepsy, I'm starting to do more of taking out punctuation. I'm doing this a lot more than I did in the the second book. I did a little bit of that, but I'm doing more of it in this book. Although this book also has some very traditional punctuation as well. Whatever I felt like I needed, you know, in the poem is what I did. But that was a good start, actually in that disembodiment idea of the epilepsy poems. How do you see the role of poetry sort of more largely culturally speaking amongst these other art forms or in the face of sickness? Like, what do we turn to poetry for? What do we hope that it would do for us as readers? Well, I think an expression um, in the tightest way you can uh, for me, I felt like I was, I have always been very, like I've always been embarrassed and ashamed of what I had of epilepsy. And I was hesitant in getting a lot of those poems out. And then I decided, you know, other people have this, this affliction and why not get it out there and let people know that this is okay. We're not insane. <laughs> 
and uh, it's not Salem anymore. And uh, just kind of as more, it's a disability. A lot of people can't get work because they have it. And I sort of wanted to come out with that um, so that it's more accepted and people don't think of it as so strange. There's very few people I even tell. I have to know somebody really, really well um, before I, I let it out. Even in my critique group, which I've been in for a long time, I brought one of these poems and they were like, what? Some of them were, they didn't know. And that's, that's a big reason for that. And I think poetry lends itself to an emotion and, and embracing in a swifter way than maybe a, an article or a piece of journalism in some ways. It's uh, more of the heart and the handwriting from the heart. I think it's really interesting to consider that autobiographical element here in this text of, you know, late self-portraits that are coordinated around a variety of sources. I think again and again about the epigraph to the volume, which is this fascinating line from Clive James, where he writes, I thought that I was vanishing, but instead I was only coming true, which is such an interesting place to start the book and I feel like speaks to this moment where you're talking about like revealing to your writing group something that they haven't known uh, about your experience by way of poems you know revealing something about yourself by way of considering things from history or of depicting you know other artists looking at themselves over time or your encounter with other artists I don't have a question here but I wonder if that is part of what we think of as the function of poetry, like creating an external thing to consider so that one can think through you know, one's experience or share it at a slant. At a slant. That's a great word. Yes. Does that, does that seem right? Does it seem like part of your intention or is it just the way that sure. we read and encounter yeah. like artworks in the world? Well, I, I think that you don't mean for that to be your intention, but that's the way it comes out. And that's a marvelous way to think about it. A slant. A slant. Well, if it's, if it's worth anything, I stole it from Emily Dickinson. So I would, not, <laughs> I would not take credit for any of that. Right. I love that. You know, I wonder about that too. Like, do feel free to stop me or refuse the question if it's too personal. But I wonder about that in the writing about your mother's illness in the book. There's a really powerful poem called Fentanyl about applying fentanyl patches as the sort of illness catches up? Like, how does one approach, you know, telling all of the truth about or aestheticizing an experience like that, like that another person has? You know, that, that, those poems that are, that were, I wrote during the time of my mother um, dying, something would happen and I would be, you know, washing my hands really carefully after putting the fentanyl patch on it because it's so toxic. It can get, it goes right through your bloodstream. And so you have to, you have to discard it very carefully and wash your hands. And those poems, when I was, I was like this, this, I have to write about this. And I would run home and write about it. You know, it, things are fresh. I, I write generally when things are very fresh and I don't have any anything else going on. No monkey mind coming in. Well, what do you mean by monkey mind, Mary? <laughs> you know, where you, oh, you have to do this and you have to do that before you ever, before you write, you have to, you have to, you know, do all these chores and, and you just get down to it and write it so that you don't lose it. 
do you worry about like recording the experience in that way or about sharing it with others like you know something so personal and so intimate you know as your mother and her passing is there concern about using that to make art or processing that through art to me art uh, poems there's a lot of risk taking in my work and not everybody feels that way Um, but for me that's what moves me is taking the risk and writing about things that are not real simple you know it's it's not going to be a mary oliver poem it's not going to be a a beautiful poem all the time it's going to be about being human and within that being human is is all the beauty and the suffering i wonder if we could maybe hear portrait of Caravaggio painting death of the virgin in this in this context because that's that's one that is encompassing sort of all of these beauty and grotesque and suffering all in the same place sure portrait of Caravaggio painting death of the virgin if he fished the drowned prostitute from the Tiber it was so he could pose her as the Madonna on an empty field of canvas Love, Mary of, they took my body to be a room for the Lord. She is the Lord, flesh, not flesh. From a jar of umber paint, apostles gathered grief over the virtuous, bloated vessel. Magdalena sits close, face and hands, as the immaculate soul ascends. What could have been said between two women who loved the same man? Caravaggio hears a great requiem, the calling of Ave Maria's chorused in his brushes as he abandons Rome, enters Ephesus. Thank you for that. It does such a great, I mean, it's another great example of the collision here between seeing and posing and process and thinking and refracting one thing through another. Here we have this drowned prostitute posed as the Virgin Mary, this sort of power of art to like erase and capture at the same time. Yes. And um, Caravaggio, there's there's something I look for too. I I, I don't look for it, but if it jumps out at me, I have to write about it. It's a in art and life, and not just as a medium, but for the rare few who have this not only passion, but they're almost in an altered state, such as what I believe Caravaggio possessed, these longer shadows, darker life. And, uh, you know, he was really kind of a wild man, uh, but he's, his paintings were incredible. And I, I see that in the, you know, Harriet Tubman, Marie Curie, they have taken these risks as human beings, women who've done, who've been first at different things for further humanity. And that, that really draws me. You know, you, you talk about the idea that these are women who took great risks and who, who advanced humanity in some way. How does recording their achievements in a poem differ from sort of the reportage of history? I think it's different because you are getting the essence of it. Instead of explaining a lot of facts, there's more emotion involved. Engendering some kind of experience in the reader or in the listener that 
has an emotional resonance, maybe? Definitely, definitely. And you and you have to do that within a, a brief language to get, really get it down as brief as you can. So I'm always pairing, pairing things, pairing down. Do the poems start with sort of long exploratory drafts that you're then chiseling away at? Not always. Sometimes it comes out very quick and a poem will be very brief and I know that's it. Uh, And then sometimes I need to explore further or change a word or find a metaphor, you know, how we do as poets. On the subject of metaphors, this is this is not intended to be a glib question, but it's going to maybe sound kind of glib. I was wondering if you could tell me, Mary, uh, about teeth. 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 There are there are a number of poems in the collection that have very striking images of teeth. That's so interesting, Kurt. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it recurs several times. So, you, you want me to give you a couple of examples? Uh, sure. So we have in a poem called Portrait of Spain, Cubism, offensive teeth shifts slightly in the jaw in a land where vendors and grocers entertain the idea of becoming matadors or picadors. Okay. Uh, Well, offensive teeth um, shifts. Uh, I'm talking about Picasso and the marvelous work he does with, you know, cubism. And I, I, you know, actually I do use teeth in my other books as well. Yeah, we have, I have another, I have, I have several more examples from this book Uh, in the portrait of Francis Bacon. There's another kind of really powerful uh, moment of encountering teeth, a child whose mind wanders into an image of teeth at the base of a crucifixion. Okay. Now that image is actually a Francis Bacon from a Francis Bacon painting which a lot of people may not know what that painting is. So that is actually from one of his paintings, but teeth are very powerful. I mean, you chew your food, you eat with them. I think teeth are very powerful for a poet to use in general. Yeah. I wonder in the, you know, sort of reviewing the references in this volume, there's something interesting in the way that you work with them or way that the image recurs because there's, like in this poem called Pandemia, there's a there's broken teeth of stalactites and stalagmites. In another poem, there's the teeth are what's left over. That my teeth will be a forest for insects uh, when my son releases these pearls around my neck. You know, after having passed, like this sort of way in which teeth are like a like a more permanent part of the body that has a staying power or like is presumed to have a stability that when it's broken or shifted symbolizes something in your work? Yes, that's so true. And, you know, it's really, um, it's really subconscious that it comes out. I have in my second book, I have two poems on teeth with my mother. She was swallowing teeth in her sleep and we didn't realize it till the morning and there would be an empty socket. And wow. Yeah. So that's, it's teeth are, I mean, they're a very, powerful part of who we are, I guess, in many different ways. I didn't, again, I didn't mean for this to be a glib sort of like, let's talk about teeth um, moment, but it is really interesting, the sort of varieties of meaning associated with them. I mean, I think of the classic Freudian dream of like losing teeth or pulling them out as a sort of anxiety over one's power or ability. 
and then to, you know, your mother at the end of her life swallowing her own teeth is a sort of very potent image and experience uh, of, you know, change over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting because you're born without teeth. You know, if you live long enough, you die without teeth. Yeah. I have a, I have my oldest child is um, taking rather longer than one is supposed to, to, to gain all of her adult teeth. So there's also that whole transition. Like now you have grown up because you have shed the sort of baby teeth, the, the first set and replaced them with this more permanent, you know, set of adult teeth as a sort of entree into adulthood. Right. That's the whole idea of it that, you know, this transformation that happens with each, you know, with these teeth coming in. And Maybe we've, we've stumbled on something. <laughs> so the subject for your next book, <laughs> <laughs> the role of teeth. Yeah. This book was awarded the wheelbarrow books prize in 2021. Is that right? That's right. Could you tell me about when it was composed? Were you writing during the pandemic uh, pieces for this book? Yes, some of these pieces are several years old. I just didn't have a an anchor, a book to put them in, and, and that's where the the epilepsy poems came in. But I did write during the pandemic, and I'd like to read this one that I did write during the pandemic, um, and it was actually when we had the last election. It's called Act of Faith. Plant one hyacinth, bulb above water. One day, a single green shoot divides into two strapped leaves as winter days gather. Justice so close to the brink, you nearly reach out to caress it. The red flicker on the other side of your window, while days swim by in dreams and duty, cooking beans, reading mail, alone in a world of lockdown. While one side of this purple flower each day blooms into tiny florets until its entire fist opens a lilac, in you, your house lifts in fragrance. Remember the air infused with pine following the deer who appeared at the edge of gold chanterelle, your mother and her honeysuckle, a son's full laughter building forts in the arroyo behind juniper and beans on the stove frothing like black rosary beads while the flower crown in the center of your house of God fuses the air you breathe with remembrance and you are hungry and you eat. Such a beautiful response to early kind of pandemic quarantines and lockdowns. It's, it's so reminiscent of that moment where we were all looking around for like some sense of assurity or consolation that things would be um, or could be beautiful or that they could be tolerable even there in our own personal spaces. Did you turn to writing or reading poetry in that moment? Always. Any work in particular help get you through? Uh, I read Yeats, and uh, I reread a lot of the books I have. I have a whole bookcase of po poetry books. So I reread a lot of that 
anything that came up that I felt like I should read a poetry, yeah. Some kind of consoling. Anything particular in Yeats that you found consoling? But a lot of it, the rhythm, you know, the rhythm and uh, the depth. I, I like poems that have a lot of depth. Well, as the poems in late self-portraits really do, I mean, I think as, we, as we've demonstrated here and as that poem, Act of Faith, demonstrates, there's so many layers to your thinking and depth of experience and artifice that bring it together and really offer an opportunity to reflect on those experiences, to think about history and artwork and, and different kinds of cultural work through a different lens. And then, of course, that ask us to sit with the real challenges of health and sickness and death and dying to sort of offer some of that consolation. I think readers will find a lot of that in late self-portraits. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, thank you, Mary. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today and I, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Mary Morris's Late Self-Portraits is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find her at water400.org. That's W-A-T-E-R 400.org, where you can also find events, poems to read, interviews, and more. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to everybody at MSU Press for helping us produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. And the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.